So we're basically at the halfway point um, of the Beatitudes. We've covered the first four thus far, and we have four more to go. And because of this, um, I just want to draw our attention to a small shift that takes place here in the Beatitudes. The first four Beatitudes are primarily God-oriented, right? Poverty of spirit, spiritual mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. These are God-oriented, yet we know that they still spill over into our interactions with fellow man, with fellow humanity. Now, the next four, though not perfectly, uh, they seem to be others-oriented. So that the focus now becomes kingdom living in relation to others, and to, in relation to fellow humanity. It's similar to the structure of the Ten Commandments, right? The first four commandments primarily focus on a relationship to God, and the next six primarily focus on a relationship to our fellow man. Or you could state um, it this way when it comes to the Beatitudes. The first four primarily deal with the inner man, uh, the transformation of the heart, and the last four address the fruit of the transformed heart. So that's just a little intro to the, to the structure there. So now we come to the fifth, fifth beatitude in verse 7, where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now there's a lot to unpack here, but we need to begin by defining what mercy is. So a little group discussion, um, because we're small, we're able to do this. How would you attempt to define mercy? God giving us what we don't deserve. Yeah, that, uh, or more, probably better to say, God not giving us what we deserve, right? It'd be the reverse. So, um, but yes, you're you're definitely there's definitely a part of that. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Any any other thoughts on that? Joshua, you're going to say something. No, I just it, it's so tied up with grace in my mind. So like it's kind of like the flip side. Um, yeah. So like. I was going to say like a gracious disposition towards people that will like offend us or uh, do us wrong. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like what she was saying, like not giving what is deserved. Yeah. 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 So I actually have here in my notes, um, you've probably heard the phrase, grace is getting what you don't deserve. So you, you don't deserve salvation, but God gives it to you. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve judgment, but you show mercy. Therefore, you don't get what you deserve. Now, there's truth to that statement, but I don't think it's adequate, or it's, it's at least not complete. Um, mercy is far more than simply not getting what you deserve. So here, here's my definition, just based upon uh, the scripture and, and some of my readings this week. Mercy is compassion towards those in need and extends that compassion in demonstrative caring acts. So it's compassion towards those in need and extends that compassion in demonstrative caring acts. So in that definition, you see two aspects there. It's the, the attitude of the heart. It's, it's, it's compassion, right? A disposition towards people. But this compassion is put on display through tangible actions. It's about concrete expressions of compassion and love. So A.W. Pink says this about mercy. Mercy is a holy compassion of the soul whereby one is moved to pity and goes to the relief of another in misery. It not only stirs the heart, but it moves the hand to render help unto those in need, for one cannot be severed 
from the other. So it's, it's a disposition of the heart. It stirs the heart, but it also moves the hand to render help unto those in need, for those two things are inseparable. Now, um, mercy can manifest itself in numerous ways, right? So, for example, uh, you, you see someone struggling, you know someone struggling financially, and in your compassion, you go out of your way to care for them with your own resources. That, that's an act of mercy, an act of compassion. But mercy can also be when someone has sinned against you, and instead of seeking vengeance, you show them mercy, right? You have compassion on them. You, you forgive them and pity them, despite the fact that they have done evil against you. Now, we know that Jesus, of course, um, displayed mercy throughout his ministry. In fact, you could say his ministry was a ministry of mercy. Um, one of the best examples we have, of course, is Jesus' example, uh, Jesus' encounter with the leper, right? In Mark 1, 40 to 41, the leper comes to him and, and we're told that he was imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And then Mark tells us this about Jesus. Moved with pity, moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. You have the definition there right in that story, right? Moved with pity, a, a, a disposition of the heart. He was, he was deeply moved with compassion. And then because of that, his compassion led him to action. He touched the leper and cleansed him and cleaned him completely. You see, Christ was moved with pity, this internal compassion, compassion which then led him to act. He touched the man. See, because Christ wasn't tainted by sin, he never felt indifference to the needy. He never felt indifference to the needy. Christ's emotions to any situation was never an overreaction, but it was also never an underreaction. Dane Ortland, in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. He tells a story when he was preaching in uh, India. And after he was done preaching, he was, he was on the street waiting for a ride. And he, he saw this homeless man that was there on the street. And, and he says that he was distressed at what he observed. He noticed that this homeless man, um, most of his fingers were partially eaten away. And, and he realized that this, this man was a leper. And, and then Ortland, um, he gives us insight into his own heart as he responded uh, to this moment, to this, to this homeless man. And, and this is what he says about himself. What happened in my heart in that moment? My fallen, prone-to-wander heart. Compassion, a little anyway. But it was tepid, that is lukewarm compassion. The fall has ruined me, all of me, including my emotions. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. Why was my heart so cool toward this miserable gentleman? The answer is because I am a sinner. Can you, can you relate to that? Not just that you have emotions that sometimes overreact to a situation, but there are moments where your emotions underreact. You lack the compassion that Christ himself always had towards the needy. 
See, Jesus never felt tepid compassion towards those suffering nor towards broken sinners. And this is what mercy is. Deep compassion manifesting itself in tangible forms of love. And this mercy, though not as pure as Jesus's, is a defining marker of a true disciple of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. Favored are the merciful. His kingdom is a kingdom of mercy, and therefore the citizens of his kingdom are called to be a people of mercy. You see, if we ourselves are not merciful, we cannot dare claim to know the God of mercy. We're called to be merciful because the God who saved us is a God of mercy. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3, um, God, uh, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he describes the Father. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's who God is. He is the Father of mercies. And we know that we are saved because of his mercy. In Titus 3, 4 to 5, um, Paul says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible affirms from beginning to end that God is inherently merciful, and therefore his people are called to be merciful. This is precisely what God declares his name to be in Exodus 34, 5 to 7, which I read at the very beginning of the service, right? He, he begins by saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, <clears throat> visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. So his name, he begins by saying this, I am a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But he is also just, as he says, he will also not clear the guilty. See, if, if you were to compare the most merciful human, apart from Jesus, of course, and compared the depth of that person's mercy to the depth of God's mercy, the difference would be that of standing in a puddle after a rain shower and that of attempting to swim to the deepest parts of the Atlantic Ocean. They're completely incomparable. Yet, there are many who think themselves to be more merciful than God. There are many professing Christians who cringe at the notion that God judges sinners. They want to follow the way of Jesus alone, as though Jesus is somehow more merciful than God, despite the fact that it's he, that he's the man who said, if you don't repent, you will all likewise perish. See, Jesus isn't more merciful than God. He is the mercy of God personified. See, underlying this, this belief or this thought about God's mercy and him not being a God who judges is an assumption. 
when you try to dismiss all the passages about God's judgment and wrath because God is merciful, you're assuming that you're more merciful than the God that's portrayed in the scriptures. You're assuming that if you were God, you would never punish or judge the way God does in the scriptures. See, there are many who think the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, but they just couldn't be further from the truth. Of course, God's wrath is displayed throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it's not the theme that carries the story. What carries the story in the Old Testament and in the New is the love, compassion, and mercy of God, not his wrath. His wrath is present, but it's not what carries the story. So why do people tend to think of God in the Old Testament as wrathful rather than merciful, despite the fact that the references to God's love and mercy far exceeds that of his wrath? Well, I think it primarily has to do with how we internally respond to reading passages about God's judgment versus God's love and mercy. See, I think the judgment passages are amplified internally for us. It's hard in our fallen state to comprehend God's righteous indignation against sin. You know, it's interesting when you read um, the wilderness journey of Israel in both Exodus and Numbers, and then also when you when you read the story of them entering into the promised land and you have the story of the judges and then also the kings, I think what often stands out to us when we read those stories is God's judgment toward wayward Israel. I think that's, that's what we predominantly feel or see as we read those stories. But for the Israelites, what stood out to them from all of those stories was actually God's mercy. Turn, turn quickly to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you're wondering where Nehemiah, Nehemiah is, go to Psalms and then go backwards. So Psalms, Job, Esther, and then Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 9. Um, the context of Nehemiah, of course, is that Israel has um, served their 70-year their, uh, captivity and exile in Babylon. They've now returned, okay? And Jerusalem is a mess, and the people are neglecting their tasks, and so Nehemiah is deeply concerned, and so he goes, and he basically calls the people to wake up. <laughs> and he, he causes, calls them to build the wall, to, to protect Jerusalem, to, to, to prioritize God's, God's city over their own homes, okay? And in Nehemiah chapter 9, there's a, a time of repentance and confession for the whole nation. And so in Nehemiah 9, you actually have this prayer of confession that, that all of Israel prays. And what's interesting is that in this prayer, um, basically they're retelling the story of Israel up until this point. So all that God did with them in, in uh, Exodus and, and in uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy and, 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 and going for, um, forward through the judges and kings. And what's fascinating is how they interpret everything that happened. They interpret it primarily through the lens of God's mercy. Okay, so let's, let's read, starting in verse 16. So just before verse 16, um, they're basically telling the story of how God uh, rescued them from Egypt. He brought them to, the, to Mount Sinai. 
Uh, he gave them water from the rock. He gave them bread from heaven. And then in verse 16, we read this. But they and our fathers, that is the former Israelites, acted presumptu presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to, return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. That's coming right out of Exodus 34, which we read already, right? So there's the first reference to God's mercy. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light, uh, to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of, uh, the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns, already uh, hewn vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. That's just basically them describing all the ways in which God blessed Israel. Okay, now look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. So there are several moments in that passage where we do see God's judgment, right? Where the reference to he handed them over to their enemies. But the focus, the, the, the driving force of, of the story is according to your great mercies, you did this. According to your great mercies. You see, the, the scriptures do teach that God righteously judges and punishes rebellious sinners. And the Bible and the authors are unashamed about it. But they saw God's judgment as his foreign or strange work. 
Isaiah actually calls God's judgment in, in um, Isaiah 28, 21, both strange and alien. See, it, it's, it's not God's heart to bring judgment. It's his heart to show mercy. Um, and in Lamentations chapter 3, 31 to 33, so you, you, you remember the story of Lamentations. Basically, it's Jeremiah's lament over the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And it's God who brought this destruction. It's God's judgment on Israel for constantly rebelling against him. But in chapter 3, 31 to 33, we have the center of the book. And this is what Jeremiah records for us about God, despite the fact that he has seen Israel utterly destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians. He says this, For the Lord will not cast off forever. That is, he will not cast off Israel forever. But though he cause grief, God causes grief. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And then here it is. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God afflicts, but he doesn't afflict from his heart. It's not his desire. It's not his delight to afflict, to bring justice, to bring punishment. He is a God who delights to show mercy. This is who God is from beginning to end. And when Jesus shows up, he didn't show up and alter who God was. Rather, he brought greater clarity to who God already was. See, and from beginning to end, we see a God in the scriptures who is full of mercy and delights to show mercy. And this is why as Christians, we are called to be people of mercy. And I think this is more countercultural than we might realize. I think our society, our secular society, is becoming more merciless every day. Things like uh, cancel culture, right? People are being canceled. They're fired for, for things they said 20, 15 years ago over social media. Social media was even around 20 years ago. Listen, I don't think this is extreme to say. I actually think that mercy has become immoral for many today. You guys probably remember um, in the summer when um, that horrifying thing happened with George Floyd, where the officer had his knee on his head and, um, and he, he died from that whole situation and, and, and people erupted and, and there were cries for justice and rightly so. But my, my friend, he posted on Facebook um, and uh, he, he said, you know, my, my heart is just heavy right now for George, George Floyd and also his family. But then he also said this, my heart also pities the police officer because that decision he made has ruined his life as well and also destroyed his family's life. And he, he's a Christian brother and, um, and I was utterly surprised at the hostility he received from people over the fact that he simply expressed a little bit of pity towards the police officer. How, how could you pity this man? He, he deserves everything that's coming to him. There was not a single bit of mercy in people's reaction. See, I think my friend 
He wasn't trying to undermine justice, but I think his heart was in the right disposition. He pitied this man who had done something wrong. It's as though we've forgotten Jesus' words, he who is without sin cast the first stone. I remember in high school, people always saying to me, the church is so judgmental, always telling people how they should live and, and not live. And, and you know what? Some of their criticism is probably fair. But now as a society, we're getting a taste of the self-righteous judgment of people who've never grown up in the church. And it's ugly. Mercy isn't a human norm. We take for granted that mercy is something to be valued and practiced due to our long Christian heritage. But Rome didn't value mercy. Greece didn't value mercy. Mercy became virtuous because of the Christian ethic that was manifested in the gospel and displayed in the lives of Christians. It was mercy that turned the Roman world upside down. See, the mercilessness of our society is increasing as secularism is increasing. And one of the ways of resisting the secular train of destruction is being a person of mercy. This is one of the defining markers of a disciple of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. Favored are the merciful. Now, what's the reasoning for why the merciful are blessed according to Jesus? Well, he says... Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So the merciful are blessed. They're favored by God because they are the ones who receive mercy. Now, on the surface, it seems that this is almost like merit-based, right? God will show you mercy if you are merciful. But that's not really what's going on here. Remember, Jesus isn't speaking here of how one becomes a follower of him. He's speaking of the markers that define one who has become a follower of Jesus. He, he's not talking here about how one becomes saved. You, you don't receive God's mercy in salvation by being merciful. If that were the case, it wouldn't be mercy, it would be reward. A.W. Pink says this, our acts of mercy are not meritorious in the sight of God. Had that been the case, Jesus would have said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain justice. For what is meritorious is due reward by right. Our text has nothing to do with salvation matters, but, in, in, um, uh, but insinuates a principle pertaining to the governmental ways of God by which we reap what we sow and have measured again to us according as we have meted out to others. So there's a general principle here that pertains to all of life. We know this general principle. If you're merciful, others will in general be merciful to you. Now that doesn't mean that in every case people will be merciful, but in general, it's true. If you're kind to others... Most likely, in general, people will be kind back to you. Also, this blessing here that Jesus speaks of, it, it, isn't, it isn't just mercy from others, but it's also mercy from God. Listen, God shows mercy to the merciful. That's just a principle rooted in Scripture. 
Psalm 1825, with the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless man you show yourself blameless. This isn't works salvation in any way. The redeemed become merciful, and the redeemed are the ones who receive mercy. So here are two questions for us as we come to an end. The first is this. When you see some kind of wickedness done, is your first instinct mercy or judgment? Is your first instinct mercy or judgment? I think Christ's first instinct was mercy. Secondly, who is the person or people in your life that you find most difficult to show mercy to? The Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25-37 was the least likely candidate to show mercy. By cultural and social societal standards, the Jews were his enemy, and yet it was he who cared for the man who was attacked by the robbers. It was he who Jesus, or the, the man who asked Jesus the question, who showed mercy. Who is it that you find hardest to show mercy to? Maybe a specific ethnic group, maybe conservatives, maybe liberals, maybe Republicans, maybe Democrats, maybe our current politicians, maybe your neighbor, your co-worker, your manager, your spouse, your parents. Who is it that you find hardest to show mercy to? I just finished a book um, called Live Not By Lies by uh, Rod Dreher. And it's, um, it's, it's basically a, a manual for Christians on how to, as Christians, resist totalitarianism. And it's, and it's basically going into the life of Christians who lived under communist totalitarian Russia. And it's in a powerful book. It, it tells all these stories of what these Christians did in order to survive and endure and be faithful to Jesus in the midst of horrific persecution. But one of the things that just stood out to me as I was reading the stories of these Christians was the incredible mercy and compassion they had for the very people who tortured them. They would pray for their torturers. Not pray that God would judge them, but pray that they would find the mercy of God in Jesus. When, when, uh, when the KGB would be following them and they would often wait outside their home in their vehicles, they would actually cook meals and, and, and bring drinks to these KGB officers in their vehicles as a means to show them that they were loved by Christ. They, they experienced some of the most horrific suffering that you could possibly imagine at the hands of these evil men. Um, is to even just tell you some of the stories. And yet, after, after communism fell and many of these men were brought to trial, many of these Christians testified. And over and over again in their testimonies, they were saying, all we want for you is mercy. All we want for you is mercy. See, they were individuals who truly knew what it meant when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we Lord, we confess that often our hearts 
are not in a disposition of mercy towards others, especially towards those who have sinned against us or those who have wronged or sinned against someone we might love. And so, Lord, we ask that you would truly give us the heart of Christ, that is when he came and he had compassion on the crowds and when he saw the people in Jerusalem, he wept over the city. When he came across the leper, he, he was moved with pity and touched him. Lord, I pray that you would give us that kind of heart, that kind of mercy towards our fellow man, towards the most difficult people in our lives. Help us, Lord, as a church to be a people of mercy. We pray this in Christ's name.